Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. Before we get started, I want to thank all my listeners for listening and also thank the contributors to my show who are executive producers Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Hoodoo Cleansing Protection Magic, Damian Keller, binaural production engineer, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host Jared Murphy. Author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are interested in contributing to this podcast, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find everything you need there. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Kellen Flukiger. Did I get that nice name right? You did impressive, Flukiger. So, uh, 100 points for you today. <laughs> so, this is kind of a different type of episode for me. I don't know if you checked out my podcast, but I tend to do a lot of paranormal, Bigfoot, UFO stuff. However, when I came across you on Facebook, I said, this might be something even stranger than that. You've been married three times, you have 10 kids. And you are not living in a cardboard box. How is that possible? Well, there's, that's a long story. So I'm not sure which answer you need. I'm actually in my fourth marriage, which is extremely successful. The first three failed because I, I lived with major depressive disorder, undiagnosed and untreated for about 40 years kind of funny because the cardboard box stuff is what often happens when you have uh, that total certainty that you're no good and you live there, which is how I live. But my driver in the depression was to prove to my mother particularly, but in my upbringing, it was very interesting dynamic, a lot of uh, discipline that today would be felony child abuse. But anyway, I, I just was desperate to prove that I was, quote, okay. In that context, I ended up being very successful, creating a big, successful corporate uh, executive career, a lot of high profile, this, that, and the other, while behind the scenes, life was a wreck. So, hence the three marriages and divorces and a couple of other relationships that didn't quite qualify in between and all of them trashed because I didn't know how to either attract or be a healthy person and uh, 10 kids that are all mine, you know, stepkids. And some of them, you know, today on the path of recovery and help, <clears throat> there's a lot of damage there still. So I've got kids that, that don't talk to me and that aren't in my life right now. Fortunately, I'm still alive, breathing, and have time, so I'm real positive about opportunities in the future. I could go on for a long time, but I suspect it's time to be quiet and no. see where we're at. Actually, I'm kind of curious about the depression part. Okay. what? Tell me more. What would you like to know? I can... Well, I, I mean, you mentioned like, it sounds like you had a rough childhood, and it resulted in some type of depression that you had a tough time shaking and it affected your relationships? Yeah. So my, my mom got married really young and she was very religious. And in that context, 
thought it was appropriate to force all of her kids to behave a certain way. And in that process, you know, and as a youngster, got married when she was 17, had her first kid when she was 18, and me when she was 21, you know, not really having any idea what it was really like to be a mother, knowing how to take care of physical needs, but really viewing her prime responsibility as forcing us to be behave a certain way. And uh, when I said the discipline would be felony child abuse, it wasn't a joke. I used to hide in the locker room, even in high school, not wanting people to see the black and blue on me. And, you know, that sort of thing. The, the fundamental message I took from that and I no longer hold any animosity. It, it, that was what it was. But the mm -hmm. message I took was I'm not good enough. I, no matter what I do, I won't be okay. And that was reinforced through the punishments I got if I didn't get perfect grades. And if I failed anything, it was if I misbehaved in church, you know, same kind of physical punishment. And I just took away, I, I'm not okay. But I need to be, I want to be, because... You know, she's she's God in that sense, meaning representative of what a person ought to be. And so I desperately wanted uh, her approval. And that, you know, would make sense as a kid. But normally you grow up and you get angry or you hide or you get bitter or you do whatever. And I just kept feeling like I needed to do that. The struggle I had is I never talked to anyone. I never saw a, a counselor. I never talked to a shrink. I never had any conversation with anyone about my, I just internalized the idea that I'm not okay. And someday when I get my crap together, then I'll finally get that approval and I'll be okay. What I knew as a youngster is that I loved the creative side. I learned to read music at the same time I learned to read about four I don't remember not being able to read music. It was that early in life. And I was a musician, a piano player, a composer, other instruments all my life. I started teaching when I was 17 and, you know, but being a musician was bad. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in the days when the hippies were born and died. And I remember the hippie funeral and the whole thing. All those were evil people. So the idea of having a musician in the family was anathema. And even though that's what I wanted to do really badly, the I, the feeling was I can never, you know, be accepted, be okay if I do that. So that conflict was there, the creative versus sort of go get a job and be a real person feeling. And like many, I gave in. I owned a recording studio for a long time. I closed it, pursued corporate stuff, which I was very successful at, a lot of high-profile positions. I ended up testifying before Congress and had a contract with the Queen of England and worked internationally and blah, blah, blah. Behind the scenes, I was a wreck. I hated myself. I was in and out of rehab. I burned through relationships. I didn't know how to be a person in a relationship. Everything that happened was always my fault and I hated me and, and hated everything. And so I did the only thing I knew how to do, which was make money. And, you know, when you have more money than brains, why bad things happen. Wow. You know, I've always been fascinated by people that could be a complete disaster on the inside and still be successful in the corporate world. Well, you're looking at what? How do you do that, though? Like, like I can't. I, I'm like, like, the, like 
a disaster on all hands sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it. You don't strike me as a disaster. How do you do that? I'll tell you how I did it. I don't know how anybody else does it. You know, Robin Williams was a successful comedian and killed himself. The, those that struggle with depression crave external approval. I wanted it particularly from her, but I also took solace in the money and the positions. I learned to not feel anything. So I remember regularly saying to myself, I don't have any feelings. I can be whoever you need me to be. So if you think of method acting in the acting world where someone takes on a legend and they become that person, it was like that. I could be whoever I needed to be in any situation with all the trappings and feelings and language. And when I was out of that situation, I either would be somebody new or I would be nothing. And in the place of nothing, you have no identity. And so you just go get wasted. You hate who you are because you don't even know who you are. So drugs and alcohol become the, the solace of that. And you know you have to perform so you get good at hiding and pretending and you get so good at what you do in the corporate world that a lot gets ignored. Hmm. That's even more incredible that you could still do that and even be addicted to drugs and alcohol at the same time. Like when I was doing drugs and alcohol, I would wake up and bad neighborhoods of Philadelphia and not remember anything. I, there was a point when I had a $3,000 a week cocaine habit. At that point, I was still making multi-billion dollar decisions as the primary policymaker in particular positions. And I don't know how I was exactly how I was able to do it other than I would simply disidentify with one persona to be the other and was able to do it for 20 years, 40 years, pretty bad for 15 or 20. That is incredible. And none of your coworkers or family noticed? Well, they all knew something. You bet. The rumors would fly and my family disowned me. Are you kidding? My family of origin disinvited me to everything. I was anathema. They knew something was wrong. They certainly never knew the extent. Uh, see, that was the thing. Unless you're okay, you don't get to be in the family. I remember, this is before I was even an addict, but at the first marriage I had, my mom didn't like the fact that I got married, and so I was unworthy. When my brother, who was four years younger than me, got married, I wasn't allowed to come and participate at the reception because I wasn't any good. I wasn't good enough to be i've got a very musical family and you know the music was okay as long as it was not to make money and out in the weird world it was so i had a lot of singing and playing brothers and sisters and i wasn't allowed to be part of that because i wasn't good enough and that only made me want it more it could make you hate and it did but the hate was directed toward me because i believed that i was that they were right and i was wrong so while all this was occurring, like, did you, at what point did you hit like a rock bottom? Like, what, where, where, where did it end? It ended in 2007. 
uh, and I, I hit, I don't know, rock bottom. It was a divine intervention, like a series of events happened that could only have been orchestrated by otherworldly forces that invited me in the most powerful way imaginable to change my life. So after exactly 30 years in that business from 77 to 07, November, <laughs> I uh, exited, walked away from contracts, turned down another CEO position, had already attempted suicide a couple times, but I literally had a, a divine intervention. I was single again for the third time to change my life. And I, I did. I went from $3,000 a week to zero in one day with no help, cold turkey, straight up. That's how dramatic the invitation was. Hmm. What was the divine intervention? Well, there were multiple parts to it. I got some strange phone calls that uh, on a phone number that I had a separate phone. It was only for my drug dealer. Nobody had that number. But they were, they were asking, you know, someone would ring and I would answer the phone and they'd ask if this was missionaries and church stuff. And one would ask if I was just the Mormon missionaries. And I just scratched that all off as weird. And then a few days later, I uh, had a, <clears throat> it was Friday night and I had a great big, at then the biggest TV you could buy. I didn't know how to use it because I didn't like watching TV, but I had a lot of money. So you have to have that stuff, right? So I had all this stuff and I asked, I had four teenagers living with me and I asked one of them how to turn it on. And so she turned it on and it was on a program, which I'd never heard of or seen. And it was a real a reality show called Intervention which is a reality show about people mm -hmm. who stage interventions, blah, blah, blah. And everybody knows apparently what it is, except me. I didn't have never <laughs> heard of it. So I saw, I watched the first few minutes and it was right at the beginning. And it, the protagonist was a high ranking executive with a serious cocaine problem. So I watched about 10 minutes of it. And I said, screw this crap. I turned it off. I'm not watching this. And I went and did some other stuff in the house I came back later and I just felt this urge to turn on the TV. So now I knew how to turn it on. So I turned it on and that program, very same program, started over at the beginning. No, I didn't have a device of recording and no, it wasn't on the schedule. Somehow the program started over right then. Okay. So I figured, wow, okay, I guess I need to watch this program. So I did. Then I went to bed. It was about midnight and I, for the next 17 hours until five o'clock on Saturday afternoon, I had what I would have described as an out of body experience in hell. I was spiritually and physically tortured with suffering, remorse and pain more than I can articulate in words. At the end of that time, I heard a voice and it said, it is enough. I woke up and I was in my own room. The bed was soaking wet, more than you could possibly either pee or sweat. I don't understand that, still don't. But I realized and that the sun was shining in the window. It was late in the, you know, five in the afternoon or so. And I lay there and thought about that. and. Then a few more things happened that day, but that was the, the big thing. And 
I realized that I had been invited to change. So I got up, I threw away everything that I had, and that was the end. I simply said, okay, I don't know what's next, but it ain't what has been. I'm done. So I didn't leave the jobs I had or the position. I was a consultant. I didn't end the contracts immediately. It, two weeks later, because of the kinds of positions that I had, the decisions I was making, I used to get all kinds of free stuff, free tickets to this and free box seats to that. And there were enough billions involved that I guess there would have been money and bribes if I had been that kind of person, but I wasn't. So I got everything else you could get, right? Free stuff. So one set of tickets I got was to a concert, a classical music genius named Yo-Yo Ma. And if you're familiar with classical music, you know who that is. And if you're not, you don't. But he is the world premier cellist. And he's a monster electric performer. And that's fine. So I always got two tickets. And I went to the office and I said, like I always did, uh, who likes classical music or the Stampede or whatever it was that I got tickets to. John Mayer was another one concert. But anyway, this one, I said, who likes classical music? And some lady in the, one of the groups that I managed said, I do. And I said, have I ever given you anything before? And she said, no. I said, okay, here, I'll meet you there. So uh, this was two weeks after this other thing. So I was two weeks straight up stone cold sober. I went to the concert. It was fabulous. Uh, Halfway through the concert, of course, the seats were together. She was sitting next to me, and I had this overwhelming feeling that I had come to recognize from the experience before. And the feeling voice in my mind said, you need to marry this woman. And I said, I don't think so. It hasn't worked out so well. I kind of suck at that. Let's not do that. And uh, later that night, uh, there were backstage passes, of course. And so we were backstage and the feeling came back and said, yeah, and you need to tell her tonight. So I did uh, against my better judgment. And it went about like you would have expected. We didn't, I mean, we knew each other, but certainly hadn't had any much personal conversation of any nature. She thought I was insane. Uh, in two weeks, within two weeks, I she had her own set of experiences. She resigned her position. When she was just before she did that, I had resigned my position and I didn't want anything that she was going to do based had to be based on the fact that I had made a lot of money because I had nowhere, no idea what I was going to go do. So I went into her office and closed the door and said, you might want to rethink all this because I just quit and I have no idea what I'm going to do or where I'm going. And so she looked at me and she said, I'm in. And so that was 14 and a half years ago. And she has been the divine, the other piece of divine intervention. She knew the rumors that had been floated around and went anyway. And so I'm talking about that level of divine intervention as an invitation to change. That kind of thing doesn't do the work for you. But what it does is it certainly lets you know without question that there is opportunity for something else if you're willing to go there. 
What do you think happened to you that night when you had an out-of-body experience? Well, I felt like I was brought to a stark awareness of all of the people, including myself, that I had harmed with my reckless behavior and with the depression, the certainty that I wasn't worth anything. So I behaved in a callous way. My kids thought they were going to find me dead somewhere and had said such to me, the ones that were living with me. And just that awareness repeatedly and parade of things going before my mind, my interpretation of that event was, like I said, a stint in hell, being aware of, continually aware of the consequences of the behaviors that you have sort of ignored for a day, week, month, or in my case, years. So I spent those hours confronting the truth of who I was. And so I say in hell, just in the context of the realizing the truth of who I had been and the end was, it is enough without any explanation. And so I was left to interpret those words as I wanted and how I interpreted them was both, it's enough that you've done, it's enough going down this road, it's enough, it's enough, it's enough. Not in a demanding or commanding way, but in a way, by way of invitation. What do you think happened? Do you think that there were some type of outside entities that intervened in your life? I had the very strong sense that there was some spiritual presence there that was not mine, that there were other bodies, part of the, you know, during the time. Like, I didn't know it was that many hours until I woke up and looked at what time it was. So it was an unspecified period of time for me that felt like a million years. It turned out to be you know, a day and a half or 18 hours, sorry, 17, some change, but so, yeah, I definitely had the sense that there were other entities present and that they were part of the invitation, that the whole process was a, was an invitation from the creator of our beings to do something different than I'd been doing. Why do you think that happened? Why you, why do so many people go down the toilet? And they picked you to save. I don't think there's anything special or exciting about me. I think that the opportunity to change, the opportunity to do and be something different is available for anybody. I mean, the fact that I was invited in such a powerful way didn't change the fact that I had to quit. didn't change the fact that I didn't have any idea what I was going to do for work. It didn't change the fact that I had wrecked all the relationships with my exes and wrecked the relationships with my kids, several of whom today, after 14 years, still don't talk to me. Lots of work and opportunity there, which I maintain a real positive thing about. So the invitation didn't fix anything. It simply was an invitation to start down the road of fixing. And the word road has been hard. And, and a lot of work, but I guess the thing that made the difference was it matters. It, it flipping matters which road you go down. Why? Why does it matter? 
because every person is valuable. That's I didn't know that then, but I know that now. Every single person matters, and we the, the it seems the fundamental condition of this mortal world that we live in is sort of non-interference. And what I mean by that is we're not forced to do anything. The invitations are everywhere. I see it in clients. I have clients who tell me about their own desires and their own feelings and their own internal battles about can I, would I, should I, could I, which are the same questions. The scale might be different, the number of years of wasted time and the hundreds of thousands of who knows how much money, you know, that might have a few zeros different. But the fundamental questions about who am I, why am I here, what difference can I make, who gives a shit, all of that stuff is the same question. And so I don't think I'm any more exciting than anybody else. I chose to do the work to climb the mountain. I also think that when anybody chooses to do that work, they can get the help they need if they want it. Why does it? Why do you think it does make a difference which road people choose? I mean, life is such a common thing here. You know, one person dies, another person's born. It's just like this never-ending, you know, sequence of human lives happening anyway. Why do you think a human life would be important to begin with, that rather than like that of an insect? I guess I guess it depends on what you choose to believe. If a person chooses to believe we're a biological evolutionary accident that came out of the mud and goes back to the mud and who gives a crap, then you wouldn't believe and wouldn't behave in a fashion that says life's important. If you if you believe, if you choose to believe that you have a divine origin and your opportunities are infinite, then your choice about how to look at, interpret, and handle the difficulties. I mean, the crap that shows up in life shows up for everybody. Uh, 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 everybody could get COVID. Everybody could get a car accident. Everybody could be born with one arm or whatever. And if if you look at this 50 to 100 years, if, if that's all there is in the entire thing, you sprung into being here and you vanish forever there, then, the, then life makes no sense at all. You know, there are people here and there and everywhere and who cares and what difference does it make and have fun while you can and so much for whatever. That's not been my experience. My experience says that we're intentional creations. My experience says that we matter. My experience says we all have the choice to do something in the space that we have. And that choice to do or not do is sort of the pivot point around what we make out of ourselves. If we, if we sit around and wait for circumstances to make us, like when I lay there, at 5.30 in the afternoon, looking at the sun shining in the window and tried to make sense of what was happened, what had just happened and what was happening to me now and how I felt and what choices I had as I lay there staring at the ceiling, soaking wet, not knowing where I'd been or what had happened, remembering clearly the, 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 the circumstance, the feelings, 
the invitation uh, was a, a hard thing. Like, what am I going to do? Because I knew choosing meant walking off a cliff. I got no idea what I'm going to do. I can't stay where I am because look at the mess I've made myself. So I got to find a new way. So what is it you believe? Do you believe that there's a God? Um, is, it, is it a religious perspective, a spiritual perspective, something metaphysical? Well, you know. Well, so that that isn't the only experience that I've had. So what I'm going to give you as an answer is not only based on that incident, but three years ago, in June of 2018, I died in the University of Alberta intensive care. I had contracted. It's funny, we talk about COVID in terms of mortality rate. And we say, you know, two, three percent mortality for, for the coronavirus. I had a superbug necrotizing MRSA in both lungs and in my bloodstream. The infectious disease specialist in, in the ICU told me after I came out of my coma, after my heart stopped, and I will well, tell you what happened in the after I died in a minute, he told me that the 10-day mortality rate of what I had was 100%. Okay. Okay. That's kind of what I said. Uh, okay. <laughs> right? Oh, okay. I guess he was wrong about that, obviously. Well, <laughs> well I mean, statistically, it was 100%, right? So what happened at that time is I, Joy and I had been on a cruise. We'd never been on a cruise before, so we went on a cruise, the Baltic Sea, which is over in Europe, and stopped St. Petersburg and Oslo and Tallinn, Estonia and Helsinki and, you know, places around that sea. And um, when at the end, I got sick. And that was on Monday. It was on Oslo at the end. And then Tuesday, I was really, really sick. We flew home Tuesday. Uh, I didn't go to the hospital or doctor right away because I kept thinking it was just a bad flu. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday went by. By Friday, I was sick that when I went into the walk-in clinic, which they have in Canada here, they wouldn't let me in. They took one look at me and said, you can't come in here. There's nothing we can do for you anyway. Go to intensive care. So I did. And I went to the emergency. And usually you go to ER and it's an hour, maybe two, maybe three, depending on how busy they are before you get triaged and somebody comes to see you and all that stuff. In 10 minutes, I was in a private room. I don't know what I looked like, but I obviously looked like I was dying, which I was. So they did a bunch of tests. A few hours later, they came and asked me. Joy had gone home. I'd sent her home because we didn't know how long I was going to be anywhere. And they were, told me they were going to admit me. And then they told me they were going to put me in ICU. And then they told me they were going to put me in biological isolation, which is in those rooms that have negative pressure and mm. double door airlocks and like some contagious disease from Mars. So there I was. And uh, I, you know, I did the crash cart thing, code green, blue, red, black, whatever it is in the hospital. Uh, and then my heart stopped. And before that happened, the doctor had come in in the final thing. And he said, so uh, at a minimum, <clears throat> we know you have some kind of horrifying pneumonia in both lungs, but there's something else going on. A lot worse. And we don't know what it is yet. But uh, do we have permission to intubate you and do anything we need to do to preserve your life? And I said, what? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? And then I went into uh, meditation, which I've done most of my life. And I could feel my body and spirit separating. So I knew I was dying. 
So I sent Joy a three-line text. This is right before the crash cart. And I said, the first line was ICU. The second line was isolation slash intubation. And the third line was I may be dying. And she didn't see that because it was, you know, midnight, one in the morning. She was asleep. 2.30, she got a call from the hospital, also the one you never want to get. And she woke up and they said, are you coming? And she said, what? And then she saw my text. So um, when my heart stopped, I, I came to spiritually in a, in a gray room. I was horizontal like I was in the bed, and I could see over to my left a doorway. And it didn't have a door, but it was a door frame, a doorway, it's like a regular door. And I wanted to be at the door, so I was there. I was leaning on the door jamb on my right shoulder. The room was gray, and I couldn't see how big it was. It was just gray in all directions. On the other side of the door, it was white. It wasn't streaming through, but it was white on that side and gray on this side. There was somebody on the other side leaning on the door jamb. And we stood there for a little while, and then the question was really simple. He looked at me, and he said, do you want to come home? And so in a flash, I knew who I was talking to and where I was and what the door was and all of the rest of it. And so we talked about it for a while. And the main thing that was on my mind was I'm not done yet. So <clears throat> the visits, I had two more visits the next day and the next day, which are written about. I wrote a book called Meeting God at the Door, Conversations, Choices and Commitments of a Near-Death Experience. But the main thing I felt and I answered finally the first question, it's funny because there was no urgency. I mean, the question was in the air, and it, I knew it needed an answer, but it was there was no pressure to answer it either way or to say or do any particular thing. But the feeling I had was, I'm not done yet. I have some more I need to do. And I thought in my mind about what had happened. That was 10 years earlier now, because this was 18, and the other experience was 10 years before that, and I had set out to do better and was trying to do that but i just had this distinct sense that i'm not done yet so that's what i said no i'm not done yet okay so then that was the end of that conversation and the next day we had another long 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 conversation which is too long to describe right now but i wrote about i wrote that in a book too but anyway, that's how I know. So if you say, Am I I've seen the being, I've seen our creator, I know we were intentionally created. I came away with four pieces of knowledge. One, that every single one of us is important. Every single one of us was intentionally created. This life, these 50 to 100 years, is some fractional molecule of a much larger process. And so all the things that seem unfair and weird and wrong and everything else in this life are unfair, wrong, and weird in this little context, but not in the overall scheme of things. So I knew we we're all divinely created. I know we have gifts and talents, every single one of us, you, me, everybody, and that we have a purpose. So you talk, so that's what I know you talk directly to God. Mm -hmm. Why did he create us? Did he, did he answer that question? I didn't ask it in that context, but the, what the four things that I knew was that we were created and that we were given gifts and a mission, a purpose. So the purpose is like, like just like we have family and kids here. Parents, they have kids. 
they want to help them grow up and have a successful entry into this particular piece of life. Well, in the macro sense, it's the same. We were created in the context of children, as it were, creations of. So think of children as a good metaphor. But the purpose is to have experience and to grow and develop and learn to be and do for ourselves in ways that are good, hmm. kind, right. It, it's clear to me in the, in the context of the whole feeling, like the whole thing was conducted in a, a framework of compassion and love. I didn't have any sense, like my thought, given my religious upbringing, my thought of talking to God before was like terrifying. Everything I'd done and who I'd been and everything else, that idea would scared the holy crap out of me. Now, that's the last place I want to be. In the previous 10 years, I'd been trying to be better, but in no way, shape, or form did I consider myself prepared for that kind of conversation. And the whole thing was not done. There was no negativity at all. There was opportunity. Well, that's good. You know, I mean... He didn't threaten to cast you down to hell to burn for eternity. There's none of that there. None, none of it. And if anybody that I know ever deserved it, it would have been me. But none of that was part of that conversation. It was opportunity and what are you going to do now? Hmm. And um, when that happened and you came out of this state, um <clears throat> Like one of the, there's, there's, there's certain common denominators with near-death experiences and people who've survived death. Um, one is like what you're saying, which is the desire to help others and f spread compassion and love. Uh, one of the other one things that usually occurs is um, some type of psychic abilities people will have. They'll be able to have, you know, read minds or have contact with other beings, visions, prophecies, whatever. And also one of the other common things is healing, the ability to heal other people. Have you experienced any of those? I certainly, I, I certainly, I don't, I, I don't run around and claim psychic insights, do readings, or any of that kind of stuff. I do know in my coaching practice that I have an enormous ability to empathetically understand what someone's feeling and connect with them in a way that their response to me, and we don't ever talk about it. I never talk about it in the context of I have an ability to X. But the reaction of people that I work with is to exclaim that in our conversations, they experience the feeling of love, encouragement, and acceptance to a degree that is unusual and sometimes unprecedented in their lives. So to the extent that that's part of gift that I have to share, then I would say yes, but I would completely run away from the idea that I'm running around trying to foretell anybody's anything. Interesting. In your coaching practice, like how, how do all these events lead you to coaching? Well, the coaching was funny. After I walked away from that stuff, after the first thing, I, I simply said, okay, I got to friggin' do something. 
what am I going to do? And I realized that the last several years of my consulting practice, I'd been hired and paid a lot of money to help people do impossible stuff. Like I was the guy that got called when there were a lot of people, different sides, a lot of animosities, billions of dollars at stake. Crap. How do we solve this problem? Who do we get? Oh, like one job I had was a result of a year and a half north year and a half long North America wide search for a hired gun to come and solve this problem. You know, I'm, I'm that guy. So what I knew I knew how to do was help people do hard stuff. Help people do things they didn't believe they could do. Like I knew I knew how to do that in the business context. And so I simply thought, what is that? And, uh, you know, the word coaching was being used then. It was starting to become, there were a few coaching schools and things. So I just thought it sounds like coaching, not in the sports sense, but that. So I investigated some coaching schools and I went and took some stuff just to see. And my executive and consulting experience lended itself well to that sort of thing. So that was the beginning of the coaching thing. My skill as a coach, which is way different than consulting, when you get hired and paid a bunch of money as a consultant, you're supposed to come in and you better friggin' know the answer and you better do stuff and you're responsible for the outcome as a, as a consultant. You're supposed to know what to do as a coach. You don't do the push-ups. You can't. Co coaches, athletic coaches, they don't run the laps or do the push-ups. They're in, I call it the people encouragement business. So that's the way I think about it as it has changed. I started as a consultant, realized that that had some commonalities with coaching, and then quickly realized the idea that I was supposed to come in, know the answers, and tell people exactly what to do didn't work because I didn't have authority to make them do things. And so when people are overcoming their own resistance, like it's rare that people don't really have any idea what to do. What's far more common is that they don't do what they know. They have an idea of what they ought to do and they don't do it. They're afraid of it. They think they'll fail. They think they suck. They think it's too late. It's not their time. You know, the list of that stuff is really long. But it's rare that someone has no idea what to do. And even if that's true, finding out what's next to do is really easy. It is set changing a person's life so that they're willing to do those things that they haven't been doing up to now if they want to get a different result than what they've got so far. So how do you find it? Find like like imagine that takes some digging for to help people find out what it is they already know or need to do. That's, that's the true art of coaching. Like people have people people often are married to their stories. I was I was married to the idea that I wasn't good enough and that nothing would change that. I never would be, and so I took solace comfort in the excuse that I just sucked and other people might be able to do this and that, but I couldn't somehow I wasn't able. And so helping people, first of all, you can't make anybody change. That's a fundamental lesson. If you want something worse than your client does, you're finished. Mm -hmm. So you have to have somebody that really wants to do this work and they're willing to go try things. We'll try this. 
try this, try that. So people ask me things like how to, how to have energy. People talk to me often. They say, oh, you have so much energy. How do you do that? Well, if I tell them what to do, first answers are often, I don't have time. I can't do that crap. I don't know. That might work for somebody else. Well, if you're going to keep doing what you've been doing, you're going to keep getting what you've got. And I know that's a silly statement, meaning obvious, but people do it over and over and over and over again. I've done it over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> and I always find myself in the same mess. And I know what to do to fix it. But um, I think sometimes uh, it's the work and the pain of fixing the situation that stops people. Would you agree with that? Totally. The pain of change has to be smaller than the pain of staying the same is a cute way to say that. When the pain of change is smaller than the pain of staying the same. It's like a drug addict hitting bottom. Hitting bottom means the pain of staying the same has now become intolerable. You've either run out of money, you're living on the street. You know, something has happened so that everything you thought you could manipulate is now gone. You've lost it. It's falling apart. And so the pain of facing those things head on, and it doesn't have to be drugs or addictions. It can be anything in your life. A person can be unhealthy. They did a study at Harvard, I think, about people dying, terminal people dying of um, smoking, some kind of cancer. And they were, they would rather die than quit smoking 95% of the time. Yeah. Quitting smoking is brutal. I've had to do it. It was tougher than any other addiction I've ever had. I believe you. <laughs> I believe you. Um, so when you, but you get it. Yeah. 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 I do get oh. it. Okay. Well then it's not impossible. Like you did that. You knew what to do. And, and the first thing may not have worked and the second and the third and the fourth and fifth, but your commitment to do it was bigger than your desire to stay the same. And so you tried enough things that it worked. Well, actually eventually I was just sort of left with no choice. I went to the doctor one day and he said, well, you're starting to get emphysema. And I was young. I was like maybe I don't know, 37, something like that. Yeah. And the first thing that popped into my head is like, man, I don't, I, I know I have to die, but I don't want to die of my own stupidity. So I quit. That was the motivation. I don't want to die of my own stupidity. People, people make decisions and get it done when they've had enough. Yeah. Yeah. I think though the, the hard part is some people never reach that point of having enough and wanting to change. Or for some reason, they become victims. I think victim is a bad thing, too. Oh, I can't do this because I am a victim. Um, can people like that be talked out of that state of mind? They have to want to. Like someone who wants to stay married to their victim mentality. You know, the, one of the distinctions I talk about is victim owner. So victim language it sounds a certain way, and you always know an owner language sounds a different way. And so the people that want to find reasons to stay a victim can always find reasons to stay a victim. If they have a spark in them, it says, I realize I'm 
sounding like a victim here and I really want to change that, then there's an opportunity to explore how to change in, in small increments, the thinking. Like, where can I take one or 2% more responsibility for some aspect of my life? It's not all or nothing. Nothing grows overnight. You know, things happen a day at a time, a week at a time. And so when you have someone who's stuck in victim, if their fundamental stance is, look, I know I'm acting like a victim, I'm sick of it, but I don't know how. And every time I try, I keep screwing up. Let's go to work on that. Then when you point out victim language, that language and approach is victim language. They'll, they won't argue. They'll say, oh, it is. Okay, cool. So what would it look like if you took 2% or 1% more responsibility for that outcome? And then you can come to a conversation. Well, if I took 1% more, I'd make one more phone call. Person saying they can't sell and they're a salesman or whatever. I, I do this would be 1% more responsibility. Okay, cool. Do that for a day or do that for a couple of days and see what happens. And so incrementally, you can, you can absolutely get done with it. But the fundamental desire has got to be in the person. I can't buy that desire and put it in you. I can't sew it in your head. Can't do it. Are there people that are just too weak to change? They just have no more, I don't know, life energy left to put into it? You know, I don't want to write anybody off. I have certainly had, my experience, honestly, is that 90%, nine people out of 10 that I talk to, I'm not really ready to be coached because the the pain of change is greater than the pain of staying the same. So uh, will it change for them? Like something will change in their lives. Someone gets married, someone has a kid, someone loses a parent, some event happens that it's like, you know, like you, emphysema diagnosis. Holy crap, I don't want to die of my own stupidity. So something happened that allowed you to change your frame. So is anyone permanently lost? I'm going to say no. Uh, I don't have the power to change them. Something has to happen for them to make a, a choice to at least consider the possibility. Maybe I could. Mm -hmm. One of the things I think that's also difficult and was difficult for me is for a long time I lived my life without being aware of my own thoughts and my own inner dialogue. It wasn't until I was able to sit down quietly by myself and actually look at those thoughts. Do, do you find that to be a common block also? A hundred billion zillion percent. One of the first skills I help clients learn is meditation. We, we don't meditate to get good at meditation. Uh, Mind Valley, Vishen Lakhiani's company, if you're familiar with that, they have a commercial out about that. And the lady teaching us says that. She says, we don't meditate to get med good at meditation. We meditate to get good at life. Meditation is really a simple practice. It is doing exactly what you said, slowing down enough to be where you are and just being aware of your own thinking and then realize that you are not your thoughts. Thoughts are just things that happen like heartbeats. You can let them go by. You can act on them. You can own them. You can laugh at them. They come and they go. 
emotions also. All emotions are are thoughts that we believe. So if I see something happen and I believe that it's bad, then I have an emotional reaction to it. If I see something happen and I don't believe anything about it or I believe that it's funny, I have a completely different emotional reaction to it. And so learning that we actually can direct our thinking, that's the skill I say when people don't want to learn meditation. I don't want to do that crap. I say the one skill you're learning, you're actually learning a skill. What's that? Like learning to, you know, tie your shoes or make your bed or eat properly or something. You're learning a skill. What's the skill? You're learning to direct your thinking. Yeah. You're learning to direct your thinking. Yeah. Like one of the things that I've always noticed is either um, my thoughts are going to control me or I can control my thoughts. Mm -hmm. Interesting. When you're stuck in that universe of not being aware, then you don't even know you have that choice. Yes. Becoming aware you have a choice and then saying, dang, I didn't have that choice. I'm going to take that choice. It's mine. Okay. Right. Hmm. Um, is there a certain formula to the coaching? Like, like, like you start out with meditation. I guess like first thing it has to be with willingness. Yeah, first you have to see if a person's willing, right? I never and, get to as far as having a client until I've assessed all that. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't take clients who aren't really ready to do the work, and we figure all that out in one or two or three conversations. When I have a conversation with someone, the first thing I want to do is get to know them. Like what's good in your life right now? What's happening well? What are you satisfied with? What are you stoked about? What do you love about every day? What would you like to change? What things would be better if they were different? Why do you think they're not different? How long have you been working on that thing or things? What have you tried? Like, it's just a partnership. If I Mm -hmm. can come to understand what you really want, what you already have, what you think you want that you don't have yet, why you think you don't have it, and then are you really willing to do, like, like you're a person and you're behaving a certain way, and that way is creating this life over here. What you're saying is you want to create a life that has these other elements in it. Okay, you can't be the same person you are now and create a life with those other elements in it. So if you want to have a life with those other elements, I'm sure you can do it. What things need to change about how you think, about what you do to set up your day, how you keep your commitments to yourself and others. What things need to change so you can be the person that creates that life. And then we go to work on them. And if a person in that process is, well, you know, I can't, then I'm not interested. Like we never get a coaching arrangement. The coaching is like, it's like, that'd be like an athlete going to a coach and say, yeah, I want to coach. No, I won't do your exercise regime. And no, I won't let you give me pointers on my jumps. And no, I won't do this. And no, no, no. But I want you to make me, you know, shave 10 seconds off my whatever time. Well, the coach is going to say, yeah, um, there's too many people that are willing you know, go, go, go ahead mm-hmm. do it yourself. Okay. Well, that's- so, so what is the first thing, like, like say, say somebody has all the qualifications, you've met them, you've talked to them, you know, they're, they're ready to make those changes, you know, um, 
like say for example me like I want to be the greatest podcaster on earth I want to be number one I want to overtake Joe Rogan okay H- how would you coach me well I would find out like what I know about you I've watched your style your questioning your stuff you've already given me some ideas you quit smoking So I'd find out a lot more about your story. Why do you want to be the greatest podcaster? Who are you going to serve with your podcast? Like what will happen that people listen to the Joe Rogan experience because something happens when they do. And that happening then makes him able to attract higher and higher profile guests. And people are wanting to be, you know, in that space. So we would need to figure out what happens in your podcasting process. I don't know what you do to market. I don't know what you do to find guests. I don't know what your intention is fully, uh, except, you know, you told me you talk about paranormal and other kinds of things. If we sat down together and we were working together, I would just want to dig in and say, okay, who do you want to serve with this podcast? Like when someone gets done listening to one or two or three of your episodes, what do you want them to do? What do you want them to feel? I want to be. I want them to be curious. I want them to ask questions, make them question things that they've never questioned before. Okay. Then we would start with what, like, what kind? We'll just do this. Then what kinds of questions? Question what? Reality. Why we're here? What is this? Okay. Why is that important? Like, how will? Let's say there's ten people, and they they you can bring them to that. What growth benefit opportunity will come to one, not even 10, just one. What will come to me? Let's say I'm your avatar. I listen to a podcast and you're trying to help me question reality, question why I'm here. What benefit comes to me because I do that? Because it can open an unlimited amount of doors for you. Okay. So, if, if we were marketing or trying to get people to understand that, what doors would it open for me? Let's say you successfully get me to question my current behavior patterns, my reality, what I think is true, what I think is available to me to accomplish. You got me to question that. What will that help me do and be? I've, my, my goal is always to make people understand that reality isn't solid is malleable, it's bendable, it's flexible. And we coexist with reality. We're not a victim of it. So because so, we, we're able to co-create, we can do anything we really want. And because we can do anything we really want too, we don't necessarily have to be controlled by religions or governments or, or even just peer pressure. So I agree, Kellen, now not as coaching, Kellen agrees with what you're saying. We do co-create. In fact, one of my statements about my day that I use every single day is I am at cause and I create my body, spirit, feelings, thoughts, and circumstances. So if I live every moment, every interaction, every behavior during the day as if I'm the creator of my body, spirit, feelings, thoughts, and circumstance. You're right. My approach to that interaction, that event is completely different. So something, if we were working together, something I would want to do is let's get some examples. 
Let's talk to some people who can tell us how they have used that truth that you've helped them uncover or that you espouse, whether they uncovered it before they talked to you or not. Because if you want me, your listener, to think I might be able to do that, what might that mean for me? If you've got something that says, wow, they did that, it's really true. Maybe because if they're stuck in a given way, to get them over here, the first question is just maybe, maybe there's something else. Huh, I've been thinking this really hard. Maybe I'm wrong. That's step one, right? Maybe there is. Holy crap. What would I do if there was? So we would talk about what would be the arc of episodes, the arc of your teaching. So let's say you have a body of teaching. Your teaching is reality is malleable. You can create anything you want. We co-create reality. The things we're stuck in, we're not really stuck in. Like, how would we organize that teaching so that it would be effective? Who would we be talking to? Who, what, what are the characteristics of a person who would just want to hear that message of possibility? People that are curious, truth seekers, people who want to have experiences that are outside ordinary experience. I, I agree with you. So in, in this kind of a short situation where we're recording this for your podcast, I, I don't know how to dig. I mean, it, it, if it were you, we would just keep talking about that. I want to know what other episodes you've done. What, what if, if I was a blank slate and you were helping me understand that everything I've thought about my life and reality and how things work may not be true. Like what would be the first thing for me to do and how would I know if I was successful and where would it go from there? Pe- people want to know. That's why the get rich crap on the internet works so well because they say make a million dollars in five seconds. So people can understand that even if they know somewhere it's BS, right? So create a reality, a life of your own design that where you are the architect of your own life experience. That's really what you're telling me, that I'm the architect of my life experience. Yeah. Okay. Well, then we need to set about proving that. I don't mean proving it to the worst person that says I can't measure it in a lab, proving it to the seeker. Like there are some people that are going to say, screw you. And they don't want to listen to that. But there's going to be a pile of people that say, I've been waiting for somebody to tell me I've been feeling this. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So planning the episodes for them and podcasts are free. So we don't make money on podcasts. I have a podcast too. So then if you're going to make a living, an honest, good living, helping people understand that truth, then we would think, okay, let's say you get people enrolled. They're in your orbit. They love what you're teaching. And they say, yeah, I love that. That guy, he's saying, where would they go from there? What would be the place that you would organize and present some process to help them in that search Mm -hmm. and in that transformation from stuck in reality to creating their own reality? So they could say, ha, oh, that's worth some money. I'd pay you for that. Right. So I would, I would month- encourage people to experiment. Experiment with all, everything, anything that they want to experiment with. Anything that's going to challenge what they're thinking, I would say experiment with that. 
So one of the things we'd have to figure out is what your end goal was. If your end goal is just to help people experiment, then the process and structure would be different than if your goal I think that my, my, end, my end goal would be for people to experiment with reality and curiosity enough that they can kind of blow their own minds. Okay. I, I totally get that. Uh, my, my fundamental question is, are you doing it as a public service or are you trying to make a business out of it? A little bit of both. You know, I mean, I'd say public service first and business would be second. Okay, cool. So, that, like, there's no right or wrong answer. But how you present it and at what point you figure out what kind of a thing would be, let's say you created the experimentation room where once a week or once a month you had open office hours where you would present things that you had experimented with and others could do the same. And that kind of a safe environment for people to explore weird things, someone could say, you know, I'll pay a little bit to belong to that club. I mean, there's different ways you can think about. I know a guy right now who teaches a particular skill on the internet and he has a little club and it's a $7 a month club. The cool thing is he has 10,000 people that belong to it. So he makes $70,000 a month for people at a very low ticket price to belong to the thing that he teaches about. But he puts a lot of effort and energy in teaching and mm -hmm. keeps it fresh. And people are getting way more than their seven bucks of value. Right. It takes a lot of work. Like even with my, my, my podcast, you know, I mean, I've made 300 episodes in a year. Wow. That's a lot. It's fabulous. Yeah. Plus, I work full time. What do you do for your work? Um, I'm like a supervisor for um, the for Sam's Club. Well, not for Sam's Club, but for the people that do the hand out the free samples and stuff. Okay, cool. Do they just? So that's been a question that my wife and I have talked about a hundred times. After COVID, are they ever going to go back to samples? Oh, we're so back. We go for sample Saturday, right? Yeah, yeah we, we're, we're, we've been doing it now for a couple months, three months now. Really? Back. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah, long, long, long as you live in a state where there's no mask mandate. Oh. Like in, in Alabama, there's no mask mandate, so we're allowed to. Ah, okay. Joy and my wife Joy and I were joking about that. We missed the samples. <laughs> In the beginning, we said, oh, there'll never be another sample Saturday at Costco or Sam's Club, whatever. <laughs> yeah, we're still, we're, we're at it. It's, it's back to normal. Oh, cool. Look, there's a path. So if you want to be the, the experience, not the Joe Rogan experience, but the what? Everything imaginable. Anything imaginable experience. Okay. Uh, one of the things I would do if we were coaching is I would want you to brand it, and I would want you to brand it with your name. People are way more connected to a name and a person like Joe Rogan than they are just words. That's changed over the last 10 years. People really want to know the person they're following, doing business with, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So if we were, if you were doing that, I would say, everything imaginable by so-and-so or so-and-so presents everything imaginable so that you would have the ability to use your name right. as an attraction point as you created other elements of your offering. That's a good idea. Interesting. Helpful. Um, so 
Where can my listeners find you and find your coaching? So I have a website, www.kellenflukiger.com. And yes, you have to spell my name right or you won't find it. <laughs> uh, I have a podcast also, and I just recorded, like you, hundreds. I just recorded episode 471 this morning. It's pretty funny because how we started um, the beginning of lockdown in March of last year, mm-hmm. somebody called my wife and said, uh, does Kellen have a podcast? Because they were looking for some motivational stuff right when the lockdown started. And she said, uh, yes. Then she came downstairs and said, we have a podcast. <laughs> and so I started it then, and it's a daily 15-minute thing called Your Ultimate Life. Mm-hmm. So Your Ultimate Life by Kellen Flukiger. So there's a podcast. I invite people to connect with me on Facebook. There's only two Kellen Flukigers in the world out of 8 billion. And the other one's my son. So I'm not hard to find. Website, uh, Facebook, fine. And I'm I'm open to having conversations with someone if they think they want to explore the idea of creating what's possible for them. I mean, I'm all about helping people do the stuff they don't believe they can do. But they can do anything they want. I know that. But most people don't. Cool. So, so someone's looking for that coach to help them, the catalyst, to help things happen that otherwise wouldn't happen. That's that's what I do. Awesome. Well, I'll put a link to your website in the notes of my episode so my listeners can find you. And hopefully you'll find maybe that one out of ten that will do it. Be happy to have a chat with anybody and see what's going on in their world and if it makes sense to have some kind of uh, stuff. We'll see. Awesome. Well, this is fantastic. This is fascinating. Thank you for being on today. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate your your uh, openness, your questions, your combo. And uh, like you, I know. I, I know. I don't think. I know that each one of your listeners, you, me, all of us, have the opportunity to do anything we want. It's just a question of getting organized and making a choice to keep at it and do it. And that's where most of us don't. Yeah, it takes work. It does. That's, that's one thing I think that people look for that quick fix, that, that, that scheme, you know. I call it the sauce. They sell it on aisle 13 and a half. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like platform nine and three quarters in the Harry Potter books, right? Mm-hmm. You have to take your luggage cart and run right at the brick column, and then you're on platform nine and three quarters, right? (laughs) You sell that sauce on aisle 13 and a half. That's the sauce you pour on what you're doing today and get a different result. Yep. Have a nice day. I don't know where (laughs) to buy that sauce. Yeah, I don't use that sauce. I think it just takes hard work and determination and a real desire to do it. Amen. Fantastic. Well, thank you again for being on and hang on for one moment while I play my outro.
see this podcast, click on the merchandise link at the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. You can also buy the book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on film that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon, and it will change your life. Remember, everything that it says was first imagined. If you loved what you listened to, 